1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's big new Brexit proposals to resolve the Irish border backstop, whether it has any chance of flying with the EU, and if there is any chance for a deal on the horizon before October the 31st. Plus, we'll be looking back at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, Boris's keynote speech, and how ready the party is for a general election. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief, Sam Fleming, columnist, Robert Shrimsley, and Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green. Thank you for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, you know what to do. Leave us a positive review or subscribe to receive it every Saturday morning. Just as the Conservative Party conference wrapped up on Wednesday afternoon, Boris Johnson wrote a letter to Jean-Claude Juncker with his proposals for replacing the tricky Irish border backstop insurance policy. This is the thing the Prime Minister thinks is holding up his Brexit deal and getting through the House of Commons. Downing Street has been quietly working on the plans for weeks, which is essentially to replace the backstop with two softer borders instead of the prospect of one hard border on the island of Ireland. At home, the proposals were received well by Brexiters and some politicians, Politicians from Northern Ireland. But it received a frosty response from the EU, raising the prospect that the plan is dead on arrival and Britain is once again stumbling towards a no deal Brexit. George Parker, let's begin with these proposals, which are not the easiest things in the world to understand, and they were released pretty much as soon as Boris Johnson finished addressing the Tory conference on a Wednesday in a letter to the President of the European Commission and a detailed policy paper and the legal text, which we have not yet seen. Take us through what this is all about.
2: Well, I think the first thing to say is what. This doesn't change. So, most of Theresa May's deal, rejected three times by the House of Commons, still stands. So, the £39 billion exit bill, citizens' rights, a transition period possibly lasting until 2022 are all still there. This focuses exclusively on the so-called Irish backstop, this idea that Theresa May had that the whole of the UK would stay in the EU Customs Union for a period to avoid any sort of border in Ireland. And as you say, it's replaced no border in Ireland under the Customs Union proposal with two types of border. First, a regulatory border. The whole of Ireland, including Northern Ireland, the island of Ireland, will be part of a single regulatory zone covering manufactured goods and agriculture and food that would throw up a regulatory border in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And secondly, most controversial of all, it proposes that Northern Ireland must remain part of the UK for customs purposes. That means there will be for the first time in many years, a customs border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And that is the bit that really is the big sticking point as we move into the negotiations.
1: And the way that Downing Street are pitching this idea, George, is to say that, look, we are leaving the customs union, which is something that Theresa May said, but then sort of recanted on a bit while she was trying to make some headway with Brexit. And this very convoluted idea of two borders is allowing the UK to leave the customs union while avoiding the prospect of customs posts along that border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Correct. I mean,
2: basically, there will be a customs border between the two territories, between the UK and the European Union. But Boris Johnson insists you can do that without having someone with a peak cap and a stripy pole on the border, or indeed any kind of physical inspection posts whatsoever. So he suggests that the inspections can be done in factories, along the supply chain, with a few random spot checks of lorries and all the rest of it. This is frankly stuff that the EU has heard many, many times before from Theresa May. It's it's all to do with alternative arrangements, so-called maxfac, maximum facilitation. And frankly, the EU says the technology isn't available and there's no other border in the world that operates like this.
1: So Sam Fleming, ever since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister on that pledge to not just tweak but remove the backstop entirely from Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, the EU has been demanding, give us some proposals, give us some legal text, and we know that there's been lots of things going on behind the scenes at an official level, but this was a big moment in Brexit and no matter how much you can criticise the proposals themselves, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment, at least this looks like a serious offer from the Johnson government that does have some legal weight behind it.
3: That's right. I mean we've had for many weeks now what officially called negotiations, but really haven't been negotiations between David Frost and his negotiating team for the UK and the European Commission on the other hand. Uh, the reason for that is because the UK has been unwilling to put forward what the EU calls legally operable texts, actual texts that you can use to turn into proper binding legal agreements to replace what Theresa May negotiated with the EU all that time ago. Instead, you've had the UK putting forward what are known as non-papers, which are very brief documents containing concepts, not actual proposals, and really a complete standoff between the two sides because of a lack of uh, tangible uh, proposals to work with. What we had this week on Wednesday was something more substantive. We had a a letter from the Prime Minister putting forward uh, his proposals, plus some legal text Now, the legal text itself has been put to the commission, but is not being released to individual member states, which is getting people's backs up uh, back here. But the UK really wants to keep this quite tight as it begins to sit down and negotiate with the EU. Now, there are reasons on this side for some optimism on the EU side. One possible reason is that Boris Johnson in his letter to Jean-Claude Juncker said that this is a landing zone that he's proposing, that a deal could take shape within this area. So he's not suggesting this is a take-it-or-leave-it proposal, and that means there is something at least for the two sides to sit down and negotiate. The other big step forward was the willingness of the UK to keep Northern Ireland for at least for a period within the single market rules and therefore reduce the potential barriers that could be erected on the island of Ireland When it comes to product regulation, not only the realm of agriculture and food, but also in manufactured goods, that was welcomed uh, on the EU side. However, as, as George has mentioned, there are some massive problems with this proposal as well.
1: And one thing that Sam mentioned there, George, is whether this is the final offer, because when this first emerged, the signs we were getting from Downing Street is they're putting this forward. And this is a take it or leave it proposal that we could tweak it around the edges. And if you don't like it and if they hadn't had good signs from the EU by the weekend, then that's it. We're full steam ahead towards no deal. But then there was a bit of pulling back from that with other people in Downing Street saying, in fact, as Sam saying, this is a landing zone. This is the beginning of negotiations, even though those formal negotiations are still sort of stuttering. Number 10 is willing to negotiate. I guess this is the question now because the EU has been frosty, I believe is how our front page described it and how they received these proposals. The question is, where does it go from here?
2: Well, that's right. I think there was a view that the the press team and Number 10 had gone far too far in saying that this was the, the final offer. And as you mentioned, he's, he's talking about a broad landing zone. And in the House of Commons this week, he was consistently pressed on whether this was a final offer or indeed whether it was a starting point for negotiations. And Boris Johnson refused to say whether this was indeed the final offer. So the implication is that there is room for manoeuvre. But the UK says there are two red lines on this. First of all, that Northern Ireland must, in all circumstances, leave the EU customs union as part of the deal. And the second thing is, we haven't discussed this yet, is the point of consent. This idea that the Northern Ireland Assembly in Stormont should have to give its consent to these new arrangements, particularly relating to this idea of a single EU rulebook covering the whole of the island uh, of Ireland. They say that's non negotiable. But it's important to say that Boris Johnson, I think, is still extremely anxious about getting a deal and he is prepared to move a bit further.
1: Sam, tell us where the EU has problems with this because from the UK side, This gives Boris Johnson what he wants. He wants a deal, he wants to be out of the customs union and he doesn't want to have a hard board. So that's the aims from the UK side. From the EU side, there seem to be these big questions about the operability of this thing and crucially, it seems to go against one of those red lines which is that there would be no new customs checks on the island of Ireland. Now, Boris Johnson has tried to renege on that commitment Theresa May made back in December 2017 and that seems to be the biggest sticking point of all this.
3: On the customs side, this is a profound, uh, as far as the EU is concerned, a profound breach from what the UK previously pledged, as you as you say. And what they're concerned about is that the erection of this new customs border would massively disrupt trade north and south. So this is not a, right now; it runs very smoothly because of. The minimal nature of that border, but that would change. There would have to be very complex uh, procedures on both sides of the border in terms of goods declarations and so on. There would be tariffs which would need to be paid. VAT would come into the difference, differentials, and excise would come into into the into play as well in terms of the forms that would need to be filled. And effectively, you're talking about there may not be checks on the physical border itself, but there would have to be checks on the island or the potential for checks, which could mean, very likely would mean, government infrastructure where goods would have to be taken in order to be examined by inspectors, which again is not what the EU is expecting in terms of frictionless or largely frictionless trade on the island of Ireland. The other problem, uh, so that's one one problem, the other problem is, is that the UK hasn't really spelt out much detail in terms of how its new regime would take effect. There aren't uh, anywhere else on the earth uh, a, a sort of major trading areas like this where there's no physical infrastructure on the border but heavy use of electronic means for declaring goods, paying fees and also uh, checks away from the border either on premises of uh, traders, uh, of, of com- commercial companies or indeed in inspection posts away from the border, which are owned by the government. So the UK has a pretty big burden explaining how this might work. Uh, And so far, it doesn't appear from the proposal been tabled that there's enough detail in terms of how this would actually work. There is a, a willingness on the UK to work at this during the transition period, But that is not something that the EU uh, is willing to sign up to. It wants to see exactly how this will work from day one. And in case we need to remind people, there isn't much time to work this stuff out. We have less than a month till the 31st of October. So they're trying to develop uh, in a very short space of time, a radical new customs regime, which is seen nowhere else on earth. And this is the big problem that the EU is going to have with these proposals, which is why you're already beginning to hear from some parts of Europe, scepticism, put, to put it mildly, as to whether this even could be a launching pad to a, a new
1: deal on Brexit. Well, this is the question for both of you. You first, George, is... We know what the basis of this deal are now. Where is the room for manoeuvre on both sides? Because the landing zone for this, to use the nice technical phrase, is pretty small. Because while the EU have been frosty, they've not dismissed it out of hand, which we know people in Downing were delighted by, because they were worried that Dublin and other EU capitals would have just said, "No, this is not acceptable," which they have done in the past with some of Boris Johnson's Brexit ideas. They did say, "Let's at least have some more informal talks about this." But the key thing is, when Boris announced this, it had the immediate support of two important groups. One, the ERG, the European Research Group of Eurosceptics, and those are the people who kept voting down every Brexit deal Theresa May brought back. And when it came to the third vote, the group split with about 30 or so MPs voting against it and the others still backed it but all of that group so far even the most hardline Brexit people like John Redwood the paleo-sceptics have said they would back it and the other group that backed it is the Democratic Unionist Party who notionally prop up Boris Johnson's government but their votes are crucial both as a canary sign for the euro but also just basic parliamentary numbers to get it through and if Boris is going to have to start nudging and compromising on this to address some of the points Sam just made he risks losing them so it's all very very Well, it's extremely tight.
2: And I think maybe just we should move away from some of the technical stuff because, as Sam said, it looks almost unbridgeable, the idea of the customs question in particular, because if the UK insists on taking the Northern Ireland out of the EU customs union... That border has got to be managed. And so far, the UK hasn't come up with, from the EU point of view, a plausible way of managing the border. But I think there's a much bigger strategic question that the EU now has to answer, which is, do they want to in any way engage with this and try to get a deal in the next couple of weeks and bring at least the first phase of our Brexit agony to an end? Because Boris Johnson, as you say, Seb, can plausibly say to them, look, if you give us a deal that looks a bit like my proposals, I think I can get it through the House of Commons. The big question facing the EU is, do they want to go for a deal now or, more likely, I suspect, say, if we don't give Boris Johnson a deal because what he's offering is just not good enough, we can then force the Prime Minister to seek an extension to the Brexit process. And after that, there will be a general election or a second referendum, either of which might produce a government which is slightly more to our liking, or in the case of a second referendum, who knows, possibly the the possibility of a, a reversal of the original Leave vote. That is going to be very tempting and there'll be a lot of people in the UK political establishment like Tony Blair, like Dominic Grieve, the former Tory Attorney General saying, push Boris Johnson to the edge and we can change the course of Brexit. The line from number 10 is quite the opposite, which is, look, if you do that, Boris Johnson will be forced to run a very hardline election campaign where he will be running against the judges, against Parliament, against the European Union. And to fend off the threat of Nigel Farage and his Brexit party, he'll have to take a very tough line on Brexit, possibly standing on a no-deal platform. So the Boris Johnson you might get back as Prime Minister in a couple of months' time won't be nice Boris that we've seen a bit of this week, but nasty Boris.
1: And Sam, what do you think of
3: any room for manoeuvre on this, both practically and politically? on the eu side clearly they're willing to sit down and talk uh, they they need to be seen to be talking no one wants to be blamed for the no deal brexit no one wants to be painted neither side wants to be painted as being intransigent they're, both sides are highly incentivized right now to appear to be uh, rolling up their sleeves and sitting down but in terms of the the, the basic red line that Boris Johnson has put down, which he wants to remove Northern Ireland from the the EU Customs Union and and keep it in the UK Customs Union, which necessitates a border and checks, customs checks on the island of Ireland. That is a fundamental problem for the EU, and it's very difficult to see how they get around it. Now, you can hear people already talking once again uh, over the side about the idea of a Northern Ireland-only backstop, uh, which was the original version of the backstop before it was moved to an all-UK backstop in the later iterations of uh, Theresa May's unsuccessful negotiations. There's been talk of some sort of time limit on that backstop as being one way of satisfying, at least partly, some of the concerns that you'll hear on the uh, UK and Unionist side about such a such a development. But it, we're a really long way away from that idea. Uh, and so it is quite hard right now, frankly, to see this notorious landing zone that Boris Johnson has said is, is, is within sight, at least in his letter that he sent to Jean-Claude Juncker. So the sense of what you're saying, Sam, is that there really isn't any
1: or much possibility of getting a new deal done and dusted and signed off at the next council meeting on the 19th of October. And it does really seem to feel as if, once again, we are not going to be leaving the EU on October the 31st. And one thing I was wondering is, is there any chance the EU could unilaterally just say, look, there's no deal, we don't want no deal, here's one last extension, which we know Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP want, because if they just come out and offer that, then it makes it a lot harder for Boris Johnson Johnson to dodge the Ben Act, which forces him to request another delay.
3: Well, you're certainly beginning to hear in Brussels a lot more discussion about the extension. People are beginning to ask what sort of conditions might be attached to that extension. So I think that, yes, dialogue is beginning to move back towards focusing on what an extension might look like and what might the conditions and circumstances which will give rise to that extension. Even the idea of getting a deal before the 31st of October, so say for some reason the UK actually did decide that it was willing to move quite radically back towards a Northern Ireland-only backstop, which would then obviously be greeted by the EU side, and that could pave the way to a deal in quite short order. Even then, you hear some people saying that would still require a technical... Extension to do all the legal work which is involved in drafting that up. And that will be, in a sense, an off the shelf answer to this standoff because an all nine only backstop actually was drafted up um, last year. But we're not there at all. What we're talking about is a radical new regime, as I said, being put forward by the UK, which will require enormous amounts of legal work to understand, to make, to, and, and for the both sides to decide whether it could actually be operable. And we're talking about days in which to do it. So we really are, I think, starting to look much more towards the extension debate. And then when you start thinking about that, the EU has its own timetable, too, because it's trying to finalize its next big, long funding round, which runs from 2021 for seven years thereafter. The longer they're unsure about whether the UK will be in the EU or for how long it'll be in the EU, the longer they're unsure about the budgetary implications, because the UK is a massive member of the EU, which makes a very large contribution to its budget. So it holds up some quite vital business on the EU side as well. So there are quite a lot of considerations attached to the extension, its length and the terms attached to it as well, which we haven't really even started to debate. But it certainly is the case that you're hearing the word extension quite a lot at the moment. And George, if you listen
1: very carefully, privately from Downing Street, you're beginning to hear that same word as well, that even though Boris Johnson devoted his conference to tub-thumping references of we are leaving and to get Brexit done, there is this growing sense that actually, in fact, an extension will be imposed on Boris Johnson, either by the courts, by Parliament, you name it, and he's not going to resign. I think that is true. That's the sense I've got from people number 10 this week, but that if there's an extension, he will oh so reluctantly and they end up having to accept it, then have an election and rallying against the establishment, as you've said. And that will probably work for his message quite well. But this idea that we are leaving October 31st really does seem to be receding after the events of this week.
2: Yeah, I've never thought it was all that likely we'd be leaving on the 31st of October. I think we'd you didn't have,
1: believe a, Boris, a, George. I've been
2: having this conversation for quite a while, but now I think it's looking at a lot less likely. And as you say, there is now a law of the land saying that we can't leave without a deal. Boris Johnson, I suspect, will challenge that in the High Court. I expect he'll probably take it to the Supreme Court, where he doesn't seem to have all that many friends at the moment. He'll probably lose. Then he'll get some poor sap in the civil service to go over and sign the Act of Surrender, as Tories would see it, and ask for an extension. And then, theoretically at least, we're into a general election period, provided, of course, the Labour Party has the nerve to actually go along with it, because in this situation, the Labour Party could face a very, very difficult opponent in Boris Johnson as the tribune of the people against the establishment.
1: But before all of that Brexit fun, it was the Tories' turn for their annual gathering in Manchester. It was Boris Johnson's first conference as party leader. And as someone who the grassroots have long loved, he naturally seemed a very warm reception. He delivered his keynote speech on Wednesday, which went down well in the hall, but was curiously lacking in any major new policy announcements. So what does the conference tell us about where Boris is and how the party is gearing up for a general election? So Robert Shrimpsey, I don't want to ask which number Tory conference this is that you've been to, but the message of this one was very clear. Get Brexit done, and it was very much a rally behind Boris and behind Brexit. It was a curious conference as these things go. Because the activists, you're right, they were very much united
4: behind him. They were happy, as I've said before, he's the itch they'd been waiting to scratch and now they've got him. But they also know that they're in a period of almost suspended animation. They're waiting for the events that are coming. There's a sort of degree of trepidation because this election's going to be difficult. Many of them were representing areas that are going to be tough to hold. So you had that sense of nervousness, a little crikey what's coming next. Having said which, you also had a pretty united conference. There wasn't a lot of rebellion on the fringes. There was some pretty clear messaging, as you said, not only get Brexit done, but then the investment in schools, police and hospitals... You very much had the notion of a party that knew what its pitch is going to be, what it's got to say, and is also quite prepared to splash the cash. The investment that they're proposing is substantial. Sajid Jafford promised businesses would spend lots of money paying their staff more with the national minimum wage. This is a
1: party in spending and campaigning mood, and it felt all right for them. Miranda Green the whole conference reminded me of that old Linton Crosby the Tory election strategist slogan which is getting the barnacles off the boat because the whole thing was very very disciplined in terms of message nobody went off message even on the imagine you could say the barnacles are the boat at the moment well indeed but on the fringes even the Brexit message was pretty united which is we're going to leave at the end of October as we were just saying that may not happen but nobody was really dissenting on either policy or Brexit terms and it's quite amazing that you know Boris is proposing some pretty major a compromise on Brexit, yet everybody accepted them, and on spending as well. It was proposing huge amounts of new cash, and yet there were very few fiscal Conservatives standing up saying, hang on a minute, is this really the best use of public funds?
5: Well, that might be the problem in the long term. Conservative Party conference is a different beast to the other two conferences that precede it, of course, because it's not a decision-making body where there are kind of exercises in party democracy all proper debates about policy. So it's only ever a kind of storefront for what the Tory party thinks it's offering. And clearly, if we think there's an election in a few weeks, that's what they needed it to be in spades. I think that the... One dissenting voice that I would sort of raise about how well it went in terms of unity of message was the Pretty Patel speech, because this was a very, very hard line anti-immigration speech. And for those who are worried about the sort of Brexit that's coming, worried about the role of the Home Office in enforcing restrictions on Freedom of movement, and even on what they're going to impose conditions on EU citizens in the UK. This is the sort of soundbite that scares non Tories, okay? For all that I agree with Robert's version of what was said, particularly on the spending, this idea that they're putting so much emphasis into those Labour areas in the North and the Midlands, which are traditionally Labour, but they think that if they invest in infrastructure, if they talk a lot about public services, housing, etc., they can sort of bring them on side. That's clearly the strategy. But there's still the overtones of the Brexit messaging and the Brexit reality, which are going to scare away a lot of moderate voters. And I think that the pre-election strategy that you're seeing played out has a lot of optimism not just in terms of the kind of mood music, but over-optimism about what they can f- actually do on the ground.
1: Well, that pretty Patel speech that Miranda mentioned, Robert, is in some ways the classic thing you often get at Tory conference, the hang and flog and kick them out speech, as some people refer to it, as well as you taking a tough line on immigration, a tough line on crime, and talking about giving nearly every police officer in the country tasers. And again, it goes back to her message, criminals should fear fear is what she has said. And the calculation of Mr Johnson's team to reflect the opposite of maybe what Miranda was saying is that the public are much to the right of the Westminster metropolitan consensus, if you like, on crime. And in fact, that stuff does go down quite well, but it's probably not going to go down well with some floating voters saying Liberal Democrat marginals. I think that's right. I sat in the hall for Pretty Patel's speech and I have
4: to say I've been in uglier halls in the Conservative Party conference over well, the years. Well, it's all on, relative, on yes. affairs, Regrettably, I don't agree with Miranda because although I share your critique of it, I think that they've put themselves where they want to be and where they think they need to be on crime and law and order. There's never a lot of votes lost by being tough on crime and seeming tougher on crime than anybody else. And I think some of the messages and messaging has been very strong on this. Some of the talk about, you know, we're going to smash the county lines, drug gangs. You think well, Great, if it was that easy, why haven't you done it already? But I think part of the coalition they're seeking to assemble, especially if we're going into an election before Brexit is resolved, is a different sort of centre to what we think of as being the one between the Conservatives and the Labour Party. And I think for the people they're going after, they may not have pitched it wrong on crime.
5: But what about those other battlegrounds, OK? Because I get it if you're overwhelmingly just looking at those Midlands and the North seats. I
1: think Johnson's team are. No,
5: absolutely. But there's a whole other flank which is very vulnerable to them, which are seats which the Lib Dems could take off them. And particularly if you get effective tactical voting. And I wasn't so much talking about the crime messaging, although I do think that going back to policies where we lock more people up in prison is sadly not where we should be going and in fact not where previous justice secretaries under the Tories have been going in recent years. So I think it's a bad turn in policy terms. I was talking about having a Home Secretary standing up with great joy and saying we will end freedom of movement. This is like the May messaging on if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. This reinforces the idea that the Tory party is not interested in those moderate pro-European voters. And I think it's extremely questionable whether, for example, Boris Johnson in his speech making such efforts to be emollient and change his tone to say, I mean, at one point in his speech, he even said, we're Europeans, I love Europe. And there was a kind of moment when the hall didn't respond and he said, "Or well, at least I do.
1: Well, that brings us on to Boris's speech, Robert, which was his first as party leader. And I was in the hall for that, actually sitting beside you, of course. And the thing about it was that during the leadership contest, Boris was very enthusiastic. I saw him at a whole bunch of hustings and the rooms were much smaller, often only up to a thousand people were there around the country. And he seemed very pumped up and energised that hall in Manchester does kill any atmosphere because it's basically just an old railway station with some curtains hanging from it but to me it felt pretty flat actually that there were some good jokes and as Miranda said he was definitely pitching towards the centre ground with his message but it didn't really light up or spark in the way that some speeches by other political leaders have but others have said that it was a great speech and they were very pleased with it It wasn't a great speech I I think we can definitely agree on that
4: It was a perfectly okay speech I think He's got a, a not always entirely deserved reputation as being this extraordinary public speaker. I think he's very good at entertaining public speaking. I think he's not always so good at serious long form policy speeches. He was good on the steps of Downing Street on the day he won office and hasn't done a lot since that, that has really swept you up. But I think part of it is that he was trying a different tone on Wednesday. I think... A, he didn't want to alienate EU leaders on the day he put his Brexit offer through, so he was none of the Brussels bashing, which the Hall certainly would have enjoyed. B, he is conscious. Whatever he said, he is aware that people think he went too far in some of his tone last week, and he's tried to be a bit immoling. One of the phrases I was very struck by was one where he said, you know, there are patriots on both sides of the Brexit debate, which I've not heard him say before. So there was definitely an attempt to be a little bit more optimistic. And the problem with being more optimistic is it just doesn't, rouse people as much as being really, really angry. And I think that's where he lost it, a bit in the hall. But I think it was absolutely fine as these things go. Leader speeches rarely matter very much. The waters close over them very quickly and they've probably closed over this one already.
1: Well, this is it, Miranda, because I'd say the whole tone of this conference, as one minister said to me, was expectant rather than exultant. And I think that the party is very much aware that an election is coming. You know, I think most people assume it's going to be before the end of this year, maybe at the latest early next year. And that's going to be Boris's moment to prove himself that we know the Tory grassroots love him. We know that Tory MPs are behind him, but he's still not been tested with the country. The last time Boris was electorally tested was in 2012 in a very different political atmosphere and a very different election. And the message he's put across is designed to speak to those parts of the country the Tories don't normally get. So it's all about spending cash on public services, delivering Brexit. And it was the whole thing was summarised, I believe, by him as being a Brexit heaser, trying to like himself more to Michael Heseltine than Margaret Thatcher. Obviously, the pair disagree somewhat on Brexit. There. And I think that message did come across that it wasn't all traditional Tory stuff, but. You do have to wonder, once we get into that election campaign, those two things are still to a lot of people quite contradictory.
5: So he ended his speech by saying, let's get Brexit done and unite the country. Both of those things are really, really hard to do. So I agree with you. That sort of more emollient tone, those bits we've picked out, all of us from the speech, which seem to be much more reaching out to the other side. That's a kind of important thing to do as a sort of correction because they had steered wildly to the right-hand side of the road, which they, they needed to come back from there, and he personally needed to come back from there. But I really agree with Robert. I think the whole thing felt a little bit like treading water, and actually everything in politics at the moment feels like treading water because no decisions are being taken, and you can't go on for much longer being the Prime Minister claiming that you, as he said the other day in his interview on the BBC before the speech, have been tasked by the country to do something specific when he has been untested in front of the electorate. So until we actually get some sort of resolution that then put to the country, either in a referendum or an election, or God forbid, both, we don't really know what we're dealing with. And we're sort of into a kind of awful American pattern of permanent campaigning where no real decisions are made and no real policies can ever be proven as successes or failures.
4: One of the things I think about his speech was it would have been roughly the right speech and it may yet be roughly the right speech if he's able to get a deal and go to the country having delivered Brexit and is a deal so it's not chaotic and shambolic and he's got all his other agenda. Then that speech attempt at a more inclusive tone works. The problem is... If he hasn't got a deal and he goes to the country fighting for Brexit and fighting about the parliament that's betrayed the British people, then all of that turns right out the window again and he's got to go back to being
1: angry and aggressive. So, as ever, it all comes back to Brexit. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Sam, Robert and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard, then you know what to do. Find some more FT journalism by subscribing. You can find our latest details at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening.